Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 12th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The crisis in beef farming and production continues. Farmers say they can't and won't sell at a loss. And the blockade of factories has seen production stop and thousands of staff laid off temporarily at 20 plants. The impasse in finding a solution reached an all-out stalemate on Monday when Meat Industry Ireland pulled out of scheduled talks because of protests continuing outside of the factories. Yesterday, the Minister for Agriculture, Michael Creed, met with with the stakeholders separately paving the way, he hopes, for another attempt at roundtable discussions. Let's talk about this with Pat O'Toole, news correspondent with the Irish Farmers Journal. Good morning to you, Pat, and thanks for joining us here on the programme. This is a long-running crisis now at this stage. We're into the seventh week of protests, almost two months on. Is there any hope of a resolution? Uh, Not this week, obviously, because the talks... Uh, if they start, we'll be starting on Monday for MII. Farmers want it to start on Saturday, but uh, it means that the gates will be closed all this week. And uh, we still need both uh, the processors and the farmers on the gates to agree that uh, the required progress has been made. In other words, the farmers have to believe that uh, there's a cessation and the uh, meat industry Ireland have to believe that there's no blockade. And that's kind of a... It's a strange one because you can't blockade an empty factory, really, because you can't stop anything going in when there's nothing going in already. So maybe the minister has taken advantage of the preemptive strike where the factories effectively closed their gates and left the farmers standing at empty gates on Tuesday uh, evening. And the minister may be taking advantage of that to agree a framework by which both sides can um, at least adopt the pretense of uh, detente, when in fact what we have is both sides have dug in this week, really. Um, and uh, if the independent farmers' uh, uh, word from yesterday, it seemed that they wanted the talks to start before they would step away from the gates. But with the factories closed, maybe it's not a blockade. We're down to this kind of mm. almost Jesuitical uh, analysis of what's a blockade, what's a protest, what's a peaceful protest, what MII will accept, and what they will need to see before they go into talks because of the events of the week so far. Uh, and uh, downright lack of trust. Uh, the lack of trust has uh, certainly... The factories lost trust in the farmers when the protests restarted 
four days after the first round of talks. Farmers lost trust in the factories a long time ago. I think the fatal breakdown was last year. We had a very tough spring and then we had the drought, um, which was part of a nas- the national conversation. Um, and there was extreme difficulty on farms of every description, including cattle farms. And at the time, uh, we had a huge amount of effort by the co-ops and by merchants bringing in feed. We had the minister uh, bringing a number of initiatives with farmers adopting a metal, mm. helping each other out, swapping silage, donating uh, feed. Uh, you had grain farmers planting catch crop uh, to allow uh, to be grazed, um, and there was incentivization of that. Meanwhile, farmers felt that the meat factories took advantage of the situation, and uh, they... they uh, press on that advantage and offered very little support to farmers and uh, I think that the seeds of the current dispute were sown last year. I think many people will be wondering how is it they're watching empty factories on television and at the same time able to go down to their supermarket and buy beef uh, as usual. Now, you're reporting in the journal this week that a, a lot of meat was processed last week but this week the kill was down significantly. Yeah, the kill around this time of the year will be about 36,000 cattle. Last year, uh, last week, despite the uh, all the protests, uh, MII said that uh, over 20 factories were blockaded. They still killed 22,000 cattle, which would be effectively 60% of normal. This week, we expect it to be around 10,000. So th- this is the week where it could kick in, but... Um, having said that, it has to be remembered that the Irish market, only uh, the retail sector mm. in Ireland, uh, only accounts for 10% of the Irish kill. We export about 90% of what we produce in this country. So uh, there's no need for immediate alarm for the Irish uh, uh, supermarket and retail sector and for the Irish shopper. Having said that, Farmers have been saying for some time that the retailers have to be part of this conversation because they're part of the chain. Um, the consumer pays a lot of money for meat and yeah. the farmer is not getting enough money back for meat. So the other two links in the chain are the processor and the retailer. And Boris Johnson was in Dublin this week telling us uh, that the United Kingdom buys half of that 90% of uh, the beef that we export. But what about the 10% uh, that is sold in Ireland? Uh, if production has all but come to a halt, is it going to go off the supermarket shelves altogether? Um, uh, well, we'll find out. I mean, the the Irish processors, you've got to remember there are a number of small independents mm. uh, who uh, account for between 10 and 15% of the national kill. They're unaffected by this. Um, they have different arrangements. They tend to pay a little more. They buy uh, top quality animals as a rule. Um, you have independent butchers as well, uh, craft butchers who, who would work maybe some of them through their own abattoirs or through those smaller independent slaughterhouses. So maybe they will have a renaissance over the mm. next two weeks and uh, shoppers will find themselves going there. It's too early to tell. Also, okay. the likes of ABP um, have uh, processing outlets in other countries and uh, they may be importing meat to fulfil contracts, which is not ideal, but it's better than empty shelves in the yeah, short term. Well, it's going in the wrong direction as far as Irish farmers are concerned and let's talk about uh, the 90% of what they produce going overseas uh, because the factories were 
pleading to farmers not to shoot themselves in the foot when the Chinese inspectors were here because uh, that could have increased sales of Irish beef by exporting to a huge market like China. Uh, But you're reporting in the journal this week that those who are already buying Irish beef overseas are are looking for alternative markets. Uh, Yeah, and they're not easy to find. Uh, The Mercosur deal is agreed, if you're talking about predominantly Europe is our marketplace, um, and the Mercosur deal, which would allow a lot of South American beef into the EU uh, tariff-free, that deal has been uh, agreed in principle, but has to be signed off by the factories It's not, or by the, the nation states, uh, the 28 member states. That's not operational. The UK can't do trade deals outside of EU deals until uh, un- until Brexit happens. As things stand... Like uh, Boris did make uh, correctly, and we, we regularly quote that 50% of the Irish uh, beef goes to the UK, mm. but 70% of UK imports come from Ireland. So they are very dependent on Irish imports. It's not easy to suddenly find that volume of beef. Um, uh, I, I, it won't magic up. So, uh, yeah, it, look, long term, this is awful. But you talked about uh, farmers shooting themselves in the foot. Um, and it, had they prevented the Chinese uh, inspections, they certainly would have. The Chinese inspections largely went ahead. But what farmers would say in response is that the factories are shooting themselves in the head by putting farmers out of business. Because if there's no beef farmers, there's no beef, there's no factories, there's no workers. And if you look around the country, whether it's Bally James Duff, Bally Harness, mm. Bandon, Bunclody, those are four towns across the four corners. The largest employer in those towns Towns is the is the meat processor. So this matters to rural Ireland, not just to farming. Are farmers divided? Uh, we heard from a, a local IFA representative uh, yesterday who was telling us uh, about some of uh, the complaints that he's getting, uh, and the majority of those are from farmers who want to sell and can't get their produce into the factories. Yeah, they're farmers who who kill cattle are under horrendous pressure. Um, seven weeks now. A lot of farmers in solidarity with the. Uh, uh, even though processors were uh, killing to some degree, a lot of farmers in solidarity with the protesters didn't kill. Um, I don't think anyone was preparing for seven weeks. There was one week where there was open killing. Um, uh, every, everyone was able to ap- operate as normal the second week before the protests recommenced. But but uh, there's a huge backlog now that's going to put pressure on the system, which will put pressure on price possibly. Farmers who want some reassurances, the factories won't take advantage of that to drive prices further down. Um, uh, processors privately would say they're going to have to work hard to maintain and, and uh, re-establish contracts and contacts. So the, like that's added pressure. Um, but our farmers uh, divided. Like There's a, a range of voices around the table, but we were just spoken to a lot of them yesterday evening after the talks. And I think that while there's many voices speaking for farmers, they are speaking with one voice. They want the factories to engage on price. They want the retailers to engage. They want unnecessary restrictions and the 30 months has become the flagship and emblem unnecessary restriction removed and they want the minister to make uh, be fully on the pitch. Pascal who made, I suppose, encouraging noises yesterday that um, uh, Brexit uh, vulnerable and Brexit affected sectors would be prioritised in the budget and um, there's no doubt that the uh, Irish agriculture is very near the top of that list and the beef sector is at the very top. Okay, and uh, if uh, the talks uh, do resume on Monday, uh, what new ground is there? It seems if there's any hope, it's in uh, the forming of beef producer organisations. Well, 
we have the first beef producer organisation confirmed yesterday. Um, they do have the right of uh, collective bargaining, uh, which is one advantage. Um, and if they gain uh, scale, um, that would give a little bit of leverage. I think the acknowledgement by the consumer, uh, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, that discussions around price are not a problem. Uh, it's not price fixing. It's not market distorting. It's a conversation, and it's an essential conversation. Um, building in some kind of assurances for farmers, I think, is the requirement. I don't know if minimum payments or minimum prices is uh, required, but you've got to remember, for the protection of the consumer long term, uh, below-cost selling is not allowed because below-cost mm. selling, in the end, will uh, will will ruin a business. So uh, if below-cost selling on the supermarket shelves is not allowed, perhaps farmers' argument, strongest argument now is that below-cost selling at the farm gate also should be uh, very strongly discouraged and perhaps forbidden. And if that was the case, if farmers were able to break even in a bad year like this, they would be able to go again next year. Mm. Um, as things stand, they're going out of business. Mm. I was asking you a few weeks ago, Pat, uh, if this would spill over into the Tullamore show. Uh, it's almost certain that it, it'll spill over into the ploughing, is it? There's huge concern down at the ploughing site, which is not too far from me. Uh, it's in South Carlow between uh, Bunclody and uh, Ballon. Um, the uh, the area is known as the Fighting Cocks. That's the name of the pub right beside the uh, the site. Uh, hopefully, it's uh, it's not going to be one that's remembered because it's appropriate. Mm. Uh, the reality is that it's the flagship for farming and for rural Ireland. Uh, and for the agribusiness sector, and every shade of it will be there. The big retailers, uh, some of the big retailers are there. It's a sitting target. And like we've had concerns, and we've expressed them in the Farmers' Journal, that at times this protest, which is about cattle prices and about the future of beef farming, has broadened into where uh, other protest groups have joined in sympathy, and it has uh, threatened to become the sort of rural equivalent of the water charges. And a lot of people may see an opportunity, um, anarchists is over dramatic, but people who, who want to protest about the way rural Ireland uh, they think is forgotten may seize this opportunity of the planning championships to push forward broader agendas. So there is huge concern, yes. Right, uh, that sounds uh, pretty serious. Uh, concern not just uh, about people articulating uh, their... Uh, worries and concerns themselves, uh, but that it, it could uh, become violent or something, is it? No, 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 no. not violent in any way. But a very uh, what's normally a celebratory atmosphere mm. and normal, um, uh, the adversarial nature of Unseemly. much of farming yeah. is set aside for a week and where the atmosphere will be soured by the tension and by uh, the desire of people to use the opportunity to put forward uh, their views on where things are. I'm talking about uh, protests and demonstrations, not, mm. not violence. No, OK, but uh, unseemly and uh, a sour atmosphere, uh, as you say. Uh, uh, on that note, uh, perhaps uh, we'll conclude uh, by uh, interpreting what you're saying to mean that uh, this is not going to be resolved in uh, the very short term. Uh, it's going to take a number of days at a minimum. Well, the talks start on Monday. Um, if they start on Monday, the ploughing starts on Tuesday morning. The last round of talks, uh, 40 hours over uh, uh, three separate days across a, a period of over a week. So uh, it's 
it's certain, unless something dramatic happens, I think it's certain that the best case scenario is that the talks are ongoing when the planning championships start next Tuesday morning. Okay, Pat, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us here this morning. Pat O'Toole, news correspondent with the Irish Farmers Journal. Now, the Peter McVeary Trust has launched its uh, pre-budget uh, submission. We'll speak about this with Francis Doherty, Head of Communications with uh, the Peter McVeary Trust. Good morning to you, Francis, and thanks morning, for joining us. Uh, I know that there is more uh, to your submission uh, other than uh, housing and homelessness, although I think all of the issues in your submission are related in different ways. Uh, but obviously, the focus is on preventing people from becoming homeless and supplying them with housing. Uh, what are the solutions that you're proposing? Yeah, well, exactly. It comes down to sort of three areas. Prevention, uh, increasing the supply of housing and making sure that supply is aligned with the, the needs that's out there. That's out there. And then thirdly, to, to look at education and employment supports for vulnerable groups or people that are sort of in homeless services at the moment. So in terms of prevention, the number one cause of homelessness at the minute is people losing their private rental accommodation. And the biggest issue there is uh, sort of small-scale landlords exiting the, the rental system and selling up. And when they do sell up, they need to sell the property with vacant possessions. So and people are, may, may be surprised to hear that the Peter McVeary Trust is suggesting making a tax benefit available to some landlords. Yeah, so what, what, what we've identified effectively is that this is, this is the, the main, this is happening. So... And it's causing homelessness and it's causing sort of a churn and chaos in the, in the rental market. So we need to find a way of sort of um, minimizing the impact on on people that are in home, in private rental accommodation who might otherwise come into homeless services if they lose their accommodation. So one way is to um, encourage landlords by way of a tax uh, break through the capital gains tax mm. uh, to sell to a local authority or uh, social housing charity like the Peter McFerry Trust, but it's only available to landlords that have a, a tenant in receipt of HAP or RAS or, or something like that. Um, and what, what that means is that the, the landlord who is going to access anyway is mm. going to access. They're going to sell to a local authority or a housing charity. There's no uh, bidding, there's no bidding more on the property that the local authority won't, will be the one that sort of agrees the price at the end of the day. So there's no uh, there's not multiple parties bidding on this one apartment when it becomes available. So mm. charities aren't competing with one another, so it keeps the price down. The tenant stays in place, and we actually transfer sort of something along the lines of social leasing into traditional social housing stock. So it's why, actually, why, why, why it, is it, uh, do you think, Francis, that landlords are exiting? Why is it that they're giving up on renting out property? They say that uh, it's not worth their while, uh, and few people can understand this, uh, given how lucrative it seems from the outside. And it seems lucrative because rents have never been higher. Yeah, well, like it, it, it is uh, lucrative, and there are a number of landlords, a large number of landlords that are making significant uh, profits. There are other landlords uh, who are exiting because, uh, I suppose, of a few factors. One, that the age of the landlord, so people are approaching retirement and don't want to be in uh, taking on landlord duties. So people that might have invested in one or two properties and sort of thought that was their pension fund, now they're retiring, they're seeking to exit and retire mm-hmm. from that activity. The other thing is that if you compare a, a, a traditional landlord with the big investors that the, the government brought in in recent years, obviously the, the tax 
situation is much more favourable for big institutional investors uh, versus the, the ordinary uh, sort of uh, okay. landlord that we have. So, so there is some merit in the arguments that they've been putting forward. Yeah, there, mm. there are, and I think mm. like it's uh, that's what we're trying to do mm. to be be realistic in our proposals and say, well, this is the situation that they face. What our concern, our primary concern, is not the the landlord; it's actually the people in the property. Because what we're seeing day in day out is people coming to our services mm. and across all the services. And tell us a little bit the, more about those people, if you would, uh, because I, I was speaking with uh, Damien English, uh, the junior minister, recently, and he said the government's priority is trying to get homes for families and that they've reduced the number of families who are homeless. Uh, But you're saying the biggest cohort are single people uh, and that the government should focus on providing uh, one-bedroomed homes for these people. Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of, it should be common sense approach. So each year, the local authorities submit a report to the housing agency. Housing agency puts together a national report, breaks it down for each local authority and tells you exactly how many single people, couples, uh, and couples with children or uh, single parent families are in need of housing. And the single biggest group within that assessment every single year is single people. But if you look at the housing delivery in the private sector and in the, the sort of local authority and housing charities, we are not building anywhere near the number of one bedroom and two bedroom homes that we urgently need. And if you look at homelessness, mm. over 40% of the people in homeless services are actually single people. So if we're to solve homelessness and we're to really reduce the number of households waiting on social housing, then we have to build the homes that is actually needed, not what we think we need or what sort of maybe the political uh, argument is because or the political priority because obviously people have uh, want to see children housed as quickly as possible. It's very emotional. Mm. Uh, there's lots of damage that can be done to children at a very young age in homelessness, so we okay. need to get them housed. But at the same time, the people that will wait longest for uh, to exit homelessness will be single people, and they'll wait even longer for never going to build the houses that, and apartments that they that they need. So what we're really trying to say is, okay, the money's there, we have a huge capital budget, but let's spend this to actually meet the need that exists, not to build loads of three and four bed homes, because we did that in the 80s and we had lots of single people that were homeless. Okay, some people listening to us uh, this morning might have choked on their cornflakes hearing the Peter McVeary Trust uh, suggest a a tax break for landlords. Uh, They may be all the more surprised uh, when they hear that you're suggesting that there uh, could be uh, some breaks given to builders and developers. Well, what we're saying is that um, for empty homes, um, we've been working on projects across uh, the country from, uh, you know, from we're working on projects in Drogheda at the minute, where we're trying to bring long-term vacant properties back into use. And before we, you know, before the project kicks off, we know that 13.5% of the cost of that project is going to go on VAT straight away. And what we're saying to the government is that there should be no VAT applied to construction projects where you're bringing back a, a long-term derelict property back into you. So we all know these buildings that sort of sit around in our town centres and villages and inner city centres that that have been vacant for years. And one of the things is that's the cost of bringing them back into use. And then the other thing is that we face is the rising cost of construction anyway. So what we're trying to do is make these projects viable. And if they're viable, then we can get more of them over the line and we can deliver more housing. So it's not going to benefit the developer, what it's really going to benefit 
is uh, the state and the fact that they can deliver houses quicker, cheaper, and uh, in the places where there's lots of services already. So it can regenerate towns, it can regenerate villages, and it can get people off the, the housing list. And, and the local authorities can actually use it as affordable housing as well. Okay. So um, it's, it's really about comes back to what are, what are the ways we can get more housing more quickly and um, we think by uh, tackling uh, empty homes and empty buildings mm. a bit smarter we, we can do that. Use the existing housing. Alright uh, we have to leave it there but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Francis Doherty who is uh, the head of communications with the Peter McVerry Trust. Now uh, as you know, it's been a very dramatic 24 hours in uh, the ongoing Brexit chaos. Uh, and we'll hear some of uh, the drama over the course of uh, the programme. But the day started yesterday with adverts in British newspapers from the Brexit party outlining a deal to Boris Johnson, uh, uh, an election pact, if you like, uh, between the Brexit party and the Conservative party. And Nigel Farage then went on LBC Radio in London to explain what he was offering Mr Johnson. The Labour Party now want a second referendum um, and from what Mr Corbyn said yesterday, not to even give us a clear choice of leaving properly. Um, The Brexit Party wants to leave the European Union. Boris Johnson says the Conservative Party wants to leave the European Union. Um, And if we stand against each other, there is absolutely no way that Boris Johnson can win a majority. But there is a very simple way through this. If Boris's Conservatives fight the next general election, and let's be frank, it really isn't going to be very far away, if they fight it on a message that they want a clean-break Brexit, uh, then what we will do is we'll be prepared to stand aside um, and even support their candidates in seats where they've got the best chance of winning if they'll do the same for us in seats where we've got the best chance of winning. And that really applies to areas of the country, uh, particularly Labour seats, uh, where Labour have held the seats for decades, where the people voted strongly leave in the referendum and where the Labour MP is a Remainer. And these are seats the Conservatives are never ever going to win for cultural reasons, uh, but we've got a real chance. Well, actually, we've done some polling of this. We've done some polling of this, and if I was to say to Brexit Party voters, and indeed even the people who vote Conservative or Labour, the Leave voters, if I was to say to those people in constituencies, this is a one-off historic election to get Brexit done, then people would listen to me in quite large numbers. What do they say about better the devil you know? Uh, God forbid the idea of a, a pact between Nigel Farage and uh, Boris Johnson. Thankfully, uh, one devil, Boris Johnson, has said no, uh, for the time being at least, to uh, that offer that Nigel Farage was making. We heard him speaking with LBC Radio in London. We'll talk about duty-free shopping now, should it uh, return. Uh, they say uh, that if uh, there's a no-deal Brexit, uh, there will be duty-free shopping between uh, the UK and Ireland. It'll cost the exchequer here in the region of €350 million Euro a year. Uh, but uh, you may not be too unhappy about that if you buy a bottle of Jemison for €26. Euro. In comparison to uh, the 47, 48 euro that you would pay otherwise uh, for that bottle of Jemison, you'd be able to buy a packet of cigarettes uh, apparently for three euro uh, instead of. Um, help me, Benny, what is it uh, for a packet of cigarettes now? 10, 11, 12 euro? Uh, 
almost 12 dollars 12 12.50. Uh, 12.50. So for, instead of 12.50, you'd be able to get a packet of cigarettes for €3. Euro. That's unbelievable. Benny Gilson, and spokesperson for Retailers Against Smuggling, joins us now. Uh, and we're not talking about smuggling. We're talking about people bringing these cigarettes into the country legitimately. What would that do to uh, sales over the counter? Uh, that will have a devastating effect, Michael, on uh, the small trade in particular because of the fact that uh, the people who would be going, we say, from Ireland to England uh, would be allowed to bring in their normal quota of cigarettes and we know that uh, invariably people will tend to bring in that extra packet. Mm. Uh, that that will have a devastating effect on the small trade. Well, you wouldn't have to bring in an extra packet. Uh, it would be worth your while just to fly or get the ferry and buy 200 cigarettes. I mean, I don't know uh, what the quota would be, but I, if I remember correctly, going back to when we had duty-free, it was 200 cigarettes, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yes that, that's, that's still the same. Uh, and uh, and, and a, a, the a bottle of spirits and a, a couple yeah. of uh, bottles of wine, or what way would that work, do you think? The, the very same way. It'll, have the, yeah. it'll, be, it'll operate the very same way, and it'll have the very same effect. Right. And as you said, like with the cheap flights or yeah. uh, going across on the ferry, two or three people going together, uh, they can bring in this uh, amount of uh, product and you have it for their own use, not even bring yeah. it in for sale. But well, like well ju- just, just on 200 cigarettes, uh, you'd be talking about saving €95. Euro. Yes. That's, nine, that's, nine, that's, sure, that's, so you can f- fly to London for €25. Euro. You can indeed. You can indeed. And, and, and for less, less on some occasions with uh, the likes of Ryanair and mm-hmm. these. Uh, you know, in all honesty, uh, but the so, so you'd spend tw- you'd spend fifteen or twenty euro on a plane ticket, uh, and you'd be up maybe eighty euro uh, on on cigarettes. And, Ju- and, and just and just by buying the cigarettes, if you bought a bottle of vodka or a bottle of whiskey uh, on top of that, uh, and all of this within your allowance, never mind. Uh, people smuggling or people travelling on ferries for work uh, and they don't have to pay anything at all and uh, they'll be back and forward maybe a couple of times a day. That's correct. That's correct. And this is where the problem lies and this is where the government have now realised that in the event of a duty-free structure coming in between ourselves and and, and Britain, Mm. that... uh, that's the effect it is going to have. Well, they'd, so, have, they'd have to get rid of uh, the taxes on alcohol and beer to some extent, wouldn't they? Uh, or, or about it, alcohol and cigarettes, I mean, sorry. It would be to, 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 well, you would think that that would be something that they would have to do. Michael, we're, we're, we're just coming into a budget in a couple of weeks' time, and I guarantee to you that cigarettes will be going up again in that budget. Mm. You know, another, uh, another 50 cent or so. Minimum of another 50 cent. That would make 13 euro. Yeah, I don't know about booze, but like definitely uh, the cigarettes will. Mm. And, uh, you know, they haven't put any thought whatsoever into uh, a duty-free structure coming into place. Mm. You know, they're constantly talking about uh, Brexit and a hard Brexit and uh, that. And yet they're talking about having people ready for this, mm. business people ready for this. Like, they haven't done anything themselves with regards to something of that nature. That would mean that you'd be able to buy a, a packet of cigarettes for €10 euro cheaper per packet and 200 would be 10 packets. So that's €100 euro that you would save uh, by that, buying 200 cigarettes duty-free, totally legally. That is correct. That is correct. That That, that is the difference between the excise duty and uh, the, the VAT and that that's on them coming, coming in. And, you know, if we if we don't deal with this uh, the, the, the trade will take a hammering, mm. you know, and and 
Well, you yeah. could you could make a living out of that, couldn't you? I, I mean, if you were to stay within your duty-free limit and buy as much uh, alcohol and tobacco as you're allowed, uh, and you did it once a day, uh, you could live off that, couldn't you? You could you could live off it, but uh, the illegal element would have crop in, Michael, if you were to sell to somebody else. You know that that would we we would have a, an illegal element there attached mm, to it because you're not licensed to do it. Yeah, you're not licensed to do it, and mm. on, but on top of that, you know the people who are doing it today are not licensed to do it, so it's not going to make any difference to them, and it will leave a, a greater opportunity for those to bring in stuff from Great Britain and claim that well we bought it duty free. Mm. You know and. You know, like, like, are, are they going to fill the courts with individuals every day of the week because they have 200 cigarettes that was brought in duty-free? Mm. All that they could have come in via uh, some other source, but they're coming in from Britain, and that's the bottom line of it. Uh, and anyway, I think if you remember back to when there was duty-free uh, between Ireland and the UK, uh, a lot of people used to take an extra pack or an extra bottle, and nothing was ever really said. That's exactly that's exactly what I, I was saying at the very outset, Michael. Mm. That this is what you will see happening. You will have people that will be going abroad and, and uh, are going to England, and instead of bringing in a pack of two hundred, they'll take a chance. Oh, sure, we'll bring in another four, mm. which will be three outers. And like, in, invariably, the customs can't catch everybody. You know, no matter how they try, they can't hold the airport up all day, checking bags, checking people uh, to see have they uh, got one pack more or two packs mm. more. You know, uh, so you know that's where the problem will arise. And as I said earlier, it is going to have a, a devastating effect on the small trade in Ireland. Mm. You know, what it, we know we know what it's like at the present time, and. I, I don't know how they're going to operate with the border. You know, they're talking that there won't be a duty-free between the north and the south. If there is a hard border, they nearly have to have a duty-free between the north and the south. OK. We'll leave it there for the moment. Benny, thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Benny Gilsonen is spokesperson for Retailers Against Smuggling. Now, as he said, the Minister for Finance has been outlining uh, his plans for the next budget and he says that he's preparing the budget on the basis that there be a no-deal Brexit. Now be prepared on the assumption of a disorderly Brexit. We are making this decision for three reasons. Firstly, with the ensuing uncertainty, it is very, very important that we give certainty. Uh, Pascal Donoghue speaking uh, yesterday uh, outside uh, of government buildings and uh, the uh, minister was asked if uh, there was the possibility uh, of having a a second budget uh, if things turn out different than had been expected. Yes, I am. Uh, My aim on Budget Day is to put together an overall framework that will explain to our citizens uh, how we will fund what we have, how we will make improvements in a number of very targeted areas. We are going to have to make choices in that area. There will be things that many people would want me to do, that indeed in other circumstances I would like to do, that I will not be doing. And then I will be using the, uh, the benefits of those decisions to then lay out how we will fund the kind of supports that will be needed to, to give uh, uh, interventions into our economy if we have to deal with a no-deal Brexit.
Minister for Finance, Pascal Dunhoo. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. One of those listeners is Deborah. She says she's no connection to farming, Michael, but she's been listening to our coverage. And it seems to her that the conversation between farmers and beef factories, which she's sure has been happening, didn't achieve the result that the farmers wanted originally. Uh, So they were probably left with no option but to stage protests in order to make their voices heard. If they didn't blockade the factories, they probably would be getting nowhere and being given a deaf ear. By doing what they did, they have certainly put the dispute centre stage. Okay. Uh, another listener, there really is no coming together of minds in relation to this beef dispute. Hard to see how a resolution is going to be reached. And in the meantime, jobs are being lost and that should not be forgotten. Yeah, well, the question is not whether there can be a meeting of minds, but is the money there? Uh, the factories say they've no more to give. The farmers say they can't produce at a loss. Uh, uh, Sean tweeted us, he was listening in as well, and says, cut ties. If farmers sell your products elsewhere, factories buy yours elsewhere, Mm. is his comment. Okay, well, 90% of the Irish beef is exported. Derek, Michael, stop all Irish and European farming subsidies straight away. Let these farmers compete like any other business. I'm sick of hearing about the poor farmers. How many poor farmers do you know? How many do you know that don't have high-end cars and four by fours says Derek. Okay well quite a a few and quite a a few are working for very little money and uh, have second jobs or other jobs as uh, the case may be and uh, I think if you were to cut the subsidies uh, I don't think you'd be eating too much beef Mairead says her family are farmers. There isn't the same appetite for the ploughing this year. I agree with your commentator, Michael. Farmers are pretty down in the mouth at the moment. There's not a lot, a lot to look forward to, especially in light of Brexit. Mm-hmm. Nobody feels like having the crack like they do at the ploughing. It's norm- normally an occasion to celebrate. I don't think farmers are in the mood for celebration. Okay. Uh, Marie from Draw had a phoned in and she had a couple of points to make in relation to a couple of different issues. First off, she feels that the companies are running rings around the farmers and she feels they need to go back to the old ways where farmers had their own co-ops. She says also in relation to the no-deal budget, we have Pascal Dunhu, the finance minister, coming on the news talking about a no-deal budget and that there won't be... um, Mm any benefits really for anybody she's saying from what she can hear and she wonders and she wonders if she's alone in thinking this could they not have waited to see what exactly is going to happen with uh, Brexit could they not have moved the budget say until November to see what happens on the 31st of October to her that would make a lot of sense because at the moment we don't really know what we're planning for and there may not be a need for a no deal budget well, if there the, is a deal. Yeah, the, uh, the government has to present uh, a budget to Europe on or before the 14th of October, so that's the reason for that. And that cannot be budged. This mm, is what she yeah. wants now. Can it, not be, can it not be changed at all in the current circumstances? No, well, the Minister could... Uh, bring forward a supplementary budget, a second budget Mm. uh, towards the end of the year or into next year. Uh, He says he's not going to do that. Okay, and the third point that uh, Marie wants to make 
is that she feels uh, as a country that um, we are allowing multinational companies to deal with their taxes abroad, they're paying pittance to Ireland and you have families sleeping on the streets of our city. It's just madness she feels. So okay. that's all our thoughts. Alright, strong thoughts there. We also had uh, a listener in touch in relation to, Michael we were talking yesterday uh, with Cyber Safe Ireland mm. and we had a couple of comments in relation to that. If I can just move on to that for a minute to get through them. Um, Madeline says that she's amazed at some of the games that parents allow their children to play. Mm -hmm. She says clearly not suitable at all. She's often been in the company of parents and she wonders why they allow, say, 12 year olds watch or use gaming videos that uh, are gaming games of games Mm. that are of a violent nature and are really geared towards young adults and she really doesn't even think they're probably suitable for over 18s. So that was her thoughts on that. Uh, Another listener phoned in actually and says, I'm nearly 60 years of age, Michael, so my children are reared. But just a thought in relation to your current discussion on cyber safety and the amount of time children are allowed online. What strikes me most is... If you go into a restaurant nowadays, I don't know if you've noticed, that you look around and you see families sitting there. They are rarely talking anymore, Michael. Mm. The children, some as young as toddlers, two or three years of age, are playing games on the parents' phones or they have their own laptops. This amazes Mm. me. The parents, too, could be on their own phones. I just wonder, is the art of conversation disappearing and where will that all lead? Yeah, well, that's it. Sometimes uh, it's impossible uh, to get uh, people's attention, whether they're young or old, because they're on their phone. We had a listener, we were also covering um, the dispute at Kalosh de Lou, Michael, in mm. relation to the teaching of Irish. Uh, and we had a parent in touch to say, my son has attended this school for the past four years, been educated fully in Irish. I feel it's a disgrace that this has happened. Kalosh de Lou was formed a good year before Kalosh de Cucullin and had its own premises in Chapel Street. Mm. At the expense of the pupils, it seems to me that LMETB used the school to catch the bigger fish, i.e. the building of the new school at the marshes. Up until last year, they had enough Irish teachers for the school, but over the summer they have left. There has been no communication between parents over the summer to inform them as to what was going on. To make matters worse now, the children are wearing different school uniforms and are all now mixed in the one class. It seems that overnight they have decided that the school doesn't exist. They need to go back to their archives and check all the press releases, etc. Okay. Interesting stuff. Yes. Well, I go on to a couple more, or yeah, you all okay, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Briefly, please. Yeah, yeah briefly. Yeah, yeah. Just um, and also we had we were discussing um, an issue there in relation to duty free, mm. and we had a listener in touch to say, Michael, I'd say the ferry companies are jumping up and down with delight mm. if this does come into force if there is a no deal Brexit surely then we will see a return of people using the ferries to 
uh, Snapple, mm. the free booze and the cigarettes. Okay, well, it won't be free, but it, it may yeah, well, the- <laughs> seem free because it'll be that much cheaper. Yeah. Okay, well, All what right. else will happen if there is a, a no-deal Brexit? And this is uh, what is being discussed in uh, this secret government document, which was published last night, British government document, that is uh, Operation Yellowhammer. And it really does paint uh, a bleak picture for people in the United Kingdom. They're talking about a rise in public disorder and community tensions, significant and prolonged disruption lasting for up to six months at channel ports with HGVs flowing at uh, 60% less within a day of the UK leaving. Maximum delays of up to two and a half days for goods vehicles crossing the channel. Incredible stuff. Disruption to medicine and medical supplies and shortage of veterinary medicines. Shortages of fresh food leading to risk of panic buying. Hundreds of thousands of people losing access to clean water because of a shortage of chemicals. They're also talking about traffic disruption impacting supplies of petrol, potentially leading to shortages and that care homes would go bust within months due to staff shortages. They say that Northern Ireland would be worst of all hit and uh, that many businesses would be out of business there'd be civil disobedience road blockages and uh, they also say uh, that uh, the policy of no new checks on the border is likely to prove unsustainable because of economic, legal and biosecurity risks. Uh, On top of all of that the British government is now facing uh, the prospect of having to return to Parliament uh, because of uh, the decision in uh, the Scottish courts yesterday that the move to prorogue the Parliament or suspend the Parliament was illegal under the Constitution. We'll hear something uh, from Boris Johnson uh, about this. He was speaking to the BBC a couple of days ago. We need a Queen's speech. That's why Parliament uh, is in recess now, because you always have a recess before a Queen's speech. And anybody who says it's all this stuff about it being anti-democratic, I mean, and break. Uh, what a load of nonsense. We, we were very, very clear that if people wanted a democratic uh, moment, if they wanted an election, we offered it to the Labour opposition and mysteriously they decided not to go for it. So we're going to get on. They're going to get on. That's what he says. A, a load of nonsense to suggest that suspending the Parliament was illegal. Now, that was not the view of Lord Carloway, Scotland's most senior judge, one of the three judges who made a ruling on this yesterday. I emphasise that these are draft opinions uh, which are being issued because of the urgency of the situation and they will be subject to typographical and other minor corrections of which there are quite a few in the course of the week. Each opinion expresses the view that the advice given by the Government to Her Majesty the Queen to prorogue Parliament from 9th September to 14th October was unlawful and that therefore the prorogation itself is unlawful. The ruling from Scotland's highest court, uh, there was a surprise and delight in equal amounts uh, from the SNP, uh, which brought uh, this case uh, to the courts. We'll hear from uh, Tommy Shepherd and Joanna Cherry now. The highest court in Scotland has ruled that it is unlawful unanimously, and uh, that in in this wonderful equal union which we're told so much about, which is the United Kingdom, then the Scottish court has jurisdiction over the Westminster Parliament. We are Scottish MPs and we represented there. But just but add, Tommy uh, would uh, like to add, I mean, we ought to be in Westminster this morning 
morning representing yeah. our constituents. And we're not because Boris Johnson has chosen to shut Parliament down. That has now been ruled to be against the law and Parliament should be immediately reconvened so that we can consider what Boris Johnson is doing to this country. Now, the news came through to uh, the shadow Brexit secretary when he was speaking at a TUC Congress meeting. Keir Starmer is also a professor of law. It was obvious, I think, to everybody that not only was shutting down Parliament at this crucial time the obviously wrong thing to do, we should be sitting each and every day to resolve this crisis, but that the Prime Minister was not telling the truth about why he was doing it. And this is really important. The idea of shutting down Parliament, I think, offended people across the country, and then they felt that they weren't being told the truth. And that sums up the man. I'm really pleased with this result. I'm surprised because for a court to make a declaration like that on an issue like this is a huge thing um, for us. It vindicates everything we've done last week. And I think what I can do and what others need to do is to get back to Parliament, see if we can't open those doors and get back in and get Boris Johnson back in Parliament so we can hold him properly to account. Thank you, Congress. That's uh, Kerr Starmer speaking at uh, that uh, TUC Congress meeting yesterday. Uh, And uh, to put this into perspective as to how ridiculous some people feel the move to suspend the British Parliament is, let's hear from former Tory MP Dominic Grieve. And he's been saying, if you can do this for this period of five weeks, you could do it forever and a day, or at least a, a number of years. Suppose the government had decided to close down Parliament for the next two years, or until the general election of 2022. Just, just for one moment. We could, under the Prime Minister's current powers, have had that done to us, unless... Uh, for some reason, Her Majesty the Queen had decided that she would intervene, which is clearly something that she would be most reluctant uh, to do. In those circumstances, there would be no control over these extraordinary exercises of power by the Prime Minister. Proroguing Parliament was fundamentally and is fundamentally wrong in in the national crisis that we face. So I shall wait with interest to see what the Supreme Court says. I can understand it may be a finely balanced matter, but the simple fact is that this prorogation, this suspension of Parliament, should not have occurred. Dominic Grieve saying it's fundamentally wrong. He was speaking to the BBC and Dominic Grieve has also been telling the BBC that there should be consequences for the Prime Minister. He can't ignore the law. The Prime Minister is subject to the law of the land and the rule of law like just like anybody else. If he were to attempt to ignore it, the government would be taken to court and he would be ordered to uh, uh, to send the letter and if he didn't send the letter he would be sent to prison for contempt jail that is all right uh, that's uh, dominic grieve speaking to the bbc and uh, we'll hear more on uh, operation yellowhammer and uh, if uh, the move uh, to prorogue parliament is illegal and what will happen if uh, there is uh, no deal brexit as we continue through the program today Now let's talk about uh, the idea of uh, United Ireland or uh, reunited Ireland uh, once again with uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Mark Daly who's on the line. A very good morning to you Mark Daly and uh, thanks for joining us on the programme as always. Uh, The Good Friday uh, Agreement allows for reuniting Ireland if uh, there's a majority of 50% plus one in Northern Ireland that uh, agree to the proposal. Isn't that correct? 
That's correct, but in fact there is no clarity as to how the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland would determine that the majority of people uh, would be in favour of United Ireland. I was at the court case in Belfast where Raymond McCord, who's a unionist, took the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to court to get clarity and to force her to come up with a policy on how exactly she would determine that the majority were in favour. Would it be opinion polls or election results? Mm. And uh, there was um, a very good insight as to the British government's thinking on it. They said that even election results would not uh, be taken as uh, a signal as to how uh, the majority of people in Northern Ireland were feeling about here in United Ireland. So, <laughs> okay, you know, so have, how do have, you measure it? But well, it, it, I don't know, because as a politician, yeah. I would say that the, the, the most definite answer you can get from the public is elections and referendums. Absolutely. You know? uh, and quite often people look to opinion polls, uh, which are only a snapshot in time. But if we look at the latest snapshot in time, it, it appears there's a, an opinion poll which suggests that there could be exactly that majority, 50% plus one. The latest Lord Ashcroft poll says 46% of people in Northern Ireland would vote to join the Republic. 45%, 1% less, would want to remain part of the United Kingdom. What does that say to you? Yeah, I mean, it shows that the, 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 move, the move is on and that it's shifting. But of course, the, the, the lesson of Brexit is you don't hold a referendum without doing all the necessary preparation and groundwork. And unfortunately, the Irish government haven't done any of that. Uh, the first report, and we've discussed it on your program many times, in the history of the state by a Dáil and Senate committee on Uniting Ireland, which I was in charge of compiling, uh, was written over two years ago and published. And all the recommendations, 17 of them, uh, were agreed on by all the members of the Good Friday Agreement Implementation Committee. And yet none of those 17 recommendations have been actioned by the government. It is one of the most reckless cases of policy neglect I can ever imagine, because bear in mind, this is the main aim of the state. And yet to date, the government uh, have not come up with any proposals on how to address unionist fears and concerns and how to prevent a return to violence. All the issues, even the economic costs of United Ireland, which reports I've worked on with, with experts in the fields uh, in those particular areas, but the government have done nothing. There is not one single report by the Irish government on how to achieve the main aim of the state since the New Ireland Forum, which is over four decades ago. Mm. Uh, If you look at how this breaks down uh, across uh, the communities and uh, the age groups and so on, uh, it seems as though there will be support ultimately for a united Ireland as things stand. Uh, We're talking about 51% versus 49%, but 98% of nationalists would vote in favour of a united Ireland, uh, which is not too surprising. Perhaps it's surprising that 2% of nationalists would vote uh, against such a proposal. Uh, 5% of unionists uh, would vote for a united Ireland, 95% uh, against. Uh, But when you get into the age groups uh, of 18 to 24-year-olds, they're pretty much the same. 60% of nationalists, 40% of unionists in favour of uh, Northern Ireland, 55% of 25 to 44-year-olds in in favour of Northern Ireland uh, or of a united Ireland on the nationalist side, 45% of unionists, and it goes on like that. Yeah, but the the next result, which is equally of interest, is how did they see it in 10 years' time? And the the question is interesting. It's not how, how, 
would they vote for United Ireland? But the question was, if there was a border poll tomorrow or in 10 years' time, what do you think the outcome would be? So this is from listening to their neighbours and their friends. And in the unionist community, um, the, the, the outcome in, in 10 years' time is that, that 29% of people believe in the unionist community that there will be a United Ireland. Uh, and 93% of nationalists believe in 10 years' time there'll be a United Ireland. So, this could know, change in six months' time, though, if there's a no-deal Brexit. Yeah, and I mean, that, of course, is where the, the, the policy neglect seldom goes unpunished, um, is that for the last, you know, since, since the Taoiseach, and uh, Kenny at the McGill Summer School three years ago said the EU needs to prepare for United Ireland. The Irish government have done nothing. In, in, and I'm talking about addressing unionist fears and mm. concerns, talking to the loyalist paramilitary groups and saying, look, it's not going to be the, the nightmare that you believe it would be. And bear in mind, people are being asked for a, to vote for United Ireland. This, this poll is, would you vote for United Ireland? No one has set out the vision of what that United Ireland would look like. Mm. So, you know, with, in the absence of that, you still have a, a vast majority of nationalists voting in favour of it, and you have unions obviously voting against it, because mm. they have this nightmare scenario that their identity will be taken off them. Well, so, I mean, the next question, though, about Brexit is, uh, you know, the, the circumstances in which people will be living then compared to now. If it's a no-deal Brexit, and if this Operation Yellowhammer report is correct, do people want to go from the relative uh, wealth that they enjoy at the moment to having no job, uh, to having no food, to having no medicine, uh, to walk down the street into a riot or to have roads blocked or uh, to have uh, the type of restrictions on movement that will result uh, from border checks uh, and indeed to the idea of guns and bombs returning. Yeah, and I mean, that was one of the findings of a report that was based on a recommendation of the Good Friday Agreement Committee is how do you prevent uh, a return to violence in the event of a hard border and a hard Brexit, which I compiled with two UNESCO chairs and President Obama's senior policy advisor on countering violent extremism and what they were looking at. And we've given this to the government, and yet, again, none of the stuff has been actioned and none of those recommendations by global experts on what you need to do now to prevent those communities returning to violence have been implemented by the government. Like in in, in relation to government policy, the government's policy on a United Ireland is as bad as the British policy in relation to Brexit. And we can see that in the government's national risk assessment, which was just published uh, in August, where for the first time ever, they acknowledged that there would have to be preparation in advance of a referendum, any referendum, mm. but particularly one on a border poll. But then they went on to say that they do not see a border poll as a risk. And then went on to say that it was too important and too sensitive to be dealt with in the national risk assessment. Mm. And, I mean, that beggars belief for the main aim of the state. But they came back and said that they would. Uh, they changed their mind, didn't they, that they would include it in the risk assessment. They, they acknowledged mm. it, but mm. they actually said that they did not see it as a risk, which is why it's not in the national. They did not see a United Ireland or a referendum on a United Ireland as a risk. Now, I'm in favour of United Ireland. I believe it's going to happen, but I believe that you need to do a lot of preparation. We've been at this for 850 years. Our nearest neighbour has been uh, controlling some or all of this mm. island, and we can take the time, but we need to use the time available to explain to people on both sides in both communities what the future is going to look like. 
because that was the mistake of the Brexit referendum. There was a lot of misinformation, and as we clearly see from some of the Brexiteers, there was lies told to people about what the future would look like. We can't afford to have a future based on lies. We must do the preparation. We must engage with everybody. But the government haven't taken the opportunity to do that. But this polling shows that, you know, there are people in the unionist community who believe that there will be a united Ireland. Mm. Now, what we need to do is explain to them what that united Ireland would look like, a new agreed Ireland, that we will be able to respect people's identity and take up what Seamus Mallon has said. We need to be prepared to do for the unionist community what they were not prepared to do for us. Because otherwise, we will have a repeat of the last 100 years for the next 100 years. And nobody wants that. Okay, we'll leave it on that note. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Senator Mark Daly, uh, Fianna Fáil Senator and uh, the rapporteur of uh, the first ever report on Uniting Ireland. Gardaí hope uh, to call back 40% of uh, the people who ring to complain of domestic violence. It's a remarkably low figure, isn't it? Uh, Let's uh, talk a a little bit more uh, about uh, this with Lisa Marmion, who's uh, the Services uh, Development Manager with Safe Ireland. Good morning to you, Lisa, and thanks for joining us. Uh, This is a personal callback target that the Gardaí have of just 40% uh, to people who've complained of uh, domestic violence. Uh, But in fact, they're not reaching that target, low and all as it is. Uh, They're only calling back 22% of victims. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Yes, absolutely. Um, That's part of the reason why in our pre-budget submission we're calling for an additional 10 million to resource the Gardaí in terms of training, but also in terms of staffing. Because it's really critical when, when people come forward to share their experiences that they, they have a response that um, is adequate, you know. Um, so it's it's crucial that in our next budget that additional tr- opportunities for training and c- continuous professional development and, of course, staffing is, is addressed. Mm. And training the staff, uh, having the staff in the first place, but having them trained uh, because... Uh, I take it uh, that some of these calls aren't given uh, the uh, focus that they should. They're not taken as seriously as they should be. Well, it's really important, uh, Michael, that we um, support the Gardaí to understand the complexity of the experience of coercive control. Um, You know, training will address that. So it will support Gardaí to identify the subtlety of the abuse. Because, you know, coercive control is a pattern of abuse that uh, may or may not include physical abuse, Mm. um, but it it also has three equally important tactics there, um, including intimidation, isolation and control. So they are not easily identifiable to the untrained eye. So it's really important that we support our guardee in this. And I take it some of the victims aren't trained in identifying coercive control or being able to pinpoint it uh, as such and don't ring up and say, I think I'm a victim of coercive control. They might ring the guards and say, he's wrecking me head. Yes, well, you see, it's it's about being able to unpack that experience, mm. Michael, because, you know, there's many different tactics used in that scenario, including gaslighting, where people are made feel that they're imagining things. Um, they're also regularly... Say that again, Lisa, sorry. What um, gaslighting. What? It's, a, it's a phrase used to describe um, how people are made feel... Um, they're really made feel that 
at times they're imagining things. Right. Mm. Um, it's in so, your head. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So that, of course, then mm. impacts on the help seeking. Um, so when people feel that they won't be, be believed or that um, what they're experiencing is invalid, like when I would have worked with women and children, um, you would hear often about, well, I'm not physically abused. So when you have, when you don't have the outward signs of abuse, it can be very difficult to articulate that. Um, so we need our guardian in the first instance to be able to respond to the subtlety of the abuse, to be able to see the pattern um, and to respond in a way that women are feeling heard, um, which of course will increase the likelihood mm. that they will progress with prosecutions. Right. Uh, and uh, this offence of coercive control was only introduced in January so so far the figures are, are very small there's just been 10 complaints of coercive control so far is that right? That's right Michael um, and like it is welcome that it is moving forward um, but it's really important I and mean, we keep talking about the training mm. but if we look across the water to Scotland similar population they've had they have had the offence of coercive control in place since the 1st of April um, and yet they're pro- Progress in 182 pr- prosecutions, and they've already had 35 convictions. And a, a crucial dif- difference there, Michael, is that the police force in Scotland have been resourced to do training. So over 14,000 of them have already been trained um, in responding to coercive control. Mm, okay, uh, um, but. Uh, how many more Gardaí are needed? You're looking for €10 million Euro, uh, to provide more Gardaí and training for those guards as well as guards uh, who are currently working out uh, of stations uh, across the country. Uh, how many Gardaí should be uh, allocated to, to dealing with uh, domestic violence uh, complaints? Well, the, there has been a very exciting development in terms of um developments and reform within Angarda Siakana and includes the setting up of divisional protective service units. So they have a specialism in this area in domestic violence, sexual violence, child abuse, human trafficking. So it's really important that those, uh, particularly those areas, are staffed adequately. So the, the hope for the end of 2019 is that there will be these divisional protective service units in all of the the 27 divisions across the country. Okay, and, and there's one of those units, of course, in County Loud, isn't there? Indeed there is, yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, the Loud area were part of the initial rollout of, of this um, of this approach. Mm. And if 22% of victims are getting a call, do we know what happens to the 78% who don't? No, we see, we don't. Like it's, it's very welcome, Michael, that the police and authority are reporting um, and keeping us up to speed uh, as to the progress. Mm. But we don't actually know and what is happening with the others. Um, and then, again, we don't actually know those that are not coming forward in the first place because mm. particularly the Fundamental Rights Agency research fairly recently has said that Ireland, particularly in terms of reporting the most serious incident, it falls very short of where it needs to be. Have you spoken to women uh, who've made complaints uh, that never heard back from anybody? Um, I haven't directly, Michael, Mm. um, spoken um, with anyone. But uh, I take it uh, we can uh, imagine uh, that that leaves them in a a fairly hopeless situation and they believe uh, that there's uh, little that they can do, that uh, they tried, uh, they complained uh, and nobody cared. Well, 
I, I think it makes sense, Michael, that when people um, are as brave as they are to move forward and to make their experiences known, that it's important that they receive a follow-up around that. It's a critical time. It's it's a time that is very difficult for people when they're trying to move forward out of a relationship at times. It can also be very dangerous. Mm. So, you know, um, all the more reason for a wraparound response to those that really need it at that time. Uh, and that quite often is the most uh, dangerous time, is it not, uh, oh, when absolutely, they are trying to leave? Michael. When, when, when control is being lost and people are trying to move away from an abusive situation, it can actually increase risk. Mm, you okay. know, contrary to what many people believe, that if people um, move out of a relationship, that that's the end of that. Mm. We, we understand um, that for many people, it, it's part of an ongoing um, experience, even post-separation. Okay, uh, you'd be worried, or I'd be worried, uh, I think, uh, if uh, somebody was listening to our conversation uh, and they felt uh, that nobody is interested, uh, that uh, the authorities don't take action uh, and there's little that they can do if uh, they're in a, a domestic violence uh, relationship. Uh, but uh, I'm sure that uh, there are lots of people who uh, get a, a positive response, Lisa. Oh, absolutely, Michael. And what we would say from our experience with Angarda Shia is the will is there. You know, in many ways, our call for additional funding is about supporting the Gardaí. Um, there are also frontline services um, of which you'd be very familiar with Women's Aid Dundalk and um, Draw the Women's Refuge in Louth, Mead Women's Refuge and Support Services in uh, in Mead, and then Charmin Domestic Violence Service in Monaghan. So there, are, there is always somebody there to speak to and always somebody there to help navigate that process. Okay, well, if uh, people uh, do uh, wish uh, to speak to somebody, uh, there is uh, the 24-hour national free phone helpline as well for Women's Aid, and that's one eight hundred three four one nine hundred. We leave it there for the moment, Lisa, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Lisa Marmion, Services Development Manager with Safe Ireland. Parents should have accurate evidence-based information about vaccines instead of some of this nonsense that you see on the internet. This is why the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, has established the Vaccine Alliance. It's aimed at boosting the uptake of childhood vaccinations and reducing vaccine hesitancy as it's been called. Part of the problem, as I say, is the internet. That's why he's called in some of the social media companies and asked which side are they on in the vaccine debate and should they consider closing accounts and web pages that spread false information and lies. He's also challenged TDs uh, about asking irresponsible parliamentary questions about vaccines. Let's talk about this with Michael Healy Ray, an independent TD for Kerry, who's on the line. Good morning to you, Michael Healy Ray. Are you one of those TDs who asks irresponsible parliamentary questions about vaccines? Well, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. And first of all, well, I certainly wouldn't agree that I'm irresponsible in asking questions. The one thing that I would always say, and on the record, uh, it will prove in the record of the doll that I have always sought what I would call proper awareness for parents of children who would be seeking or needing vaccines. Well, how many times Uh, have you asked about the HPV vaccine? Oh, well, to 
be honest with you now, Michael, in my head, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know how many, how many I would have asked. I wouldn't have a clue how many. Half a dozen times, a dozen times. I, I would not know. Yeah, All well, I would you, know you've raised it uh, at least that amount of times. Uh, I think, uh, and as an issue of concern, when you've been told continuously that there is no concern. In fact, if uh, there isn't widespread uptake of uh, the HPV vaccine, uh, we'll have uh, the continuing, continuous. Uh, destruction of people through cervical cancer and other cancers. Well, I suppose, Michael, you know, you have to be fair and balanced in this. All I would want, which I presume is what you would want, I would want what is best for our young people. And when people are uh, supposed to have vaccines, of course it is right and proper that they have the vaccines. But I would uh, insist that the parents would be made properly be made properly aware of the consequences of taking vaccines and of uh, what is needed and what is required of them and uh, and just that things would be done properly, mm. right? And what I would say is... Well, you're, you're, you're suge- you've already suggested now, and what you've just said there, you've already suggested that it's not being done properly. No, I know, Mike... Ah, you are, because you're asking well, the question. Well, hold on now, Mike. If you think that when parents meet me, mm. and if they ask me to raise an issue with a minister, mm. if you think that I'm not acting properly to ask questions... No, I didn't say minister, that. No, I didn't say that. Well, 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 when you go saying that you're trying to insinuate that I've done something wrong... No, no, I no. I've said you've planted doubt in people's mind by saying that you would hope, and you would hope that I would hope, uh, and everybody listening would hope that it's being done properly. The first thing everybody listening thinks is, God, is it not being done properly? The one thing that would be very, very important is that people would have awareness of what the vaccines were, mm. what the consequences of them would be. I have, through my work, met with, on many, many occasions, unfortunate situations where things have gone wrong. And we can't deny that. And the minister can't deny that. But you have to look at, and I would agree with you on this, and I would agree with the minister on on it, you have to look at the greater good. But having said said that, it is uh, not right in my book that vaccines would be administered without the parents being involved in the whole process and and knowing exactly uh, what was involved and what the consequences could be. But for anybody to start to go putting down someone like you tried doing a minute ago because mm. of raising... Oh, no, no, I wasn't, putting, I, I, was putting, I wasn't putting it down. I was pointing out that you were raising doubts in people's minds by, no, no, by, by, by suggesting that things are not being done properly. Mikey, I'm just after coming out of a meeting with a disability group who asked me to raise issues with a minister about the disability services in County Kerry. Mm, mm. Are you trying to say so that when I will raise those matters with the minister, that I'm trying to say there's something inherently wrong with disability services? Just because you ask something, I'm not going to go to Dublin and be silent and not represent the people when they ask me to do something. If it doesn't suit you, I'm sorry for you, Michael. It's... But like, I will do my job in the best way I see fit. And if I'm asked, to raise a matter with a minister, and if I think it's the right thing to do so, I will do so. Okay, so and why? I won't go on your radio station, and I won't apologise. No, but why? Why do you? Why do you think? Why, why do you think it, it, it's right to ask if the HPV vaccine is safe, 
given all of the assurance that you get from the HSE, the National Immunisation Office and the World Health Organisation for that matter? I, I'll tell you why. Because if you were inside in a, in a parent's house and if there is a child who has, is seriously ill or has a medical, uh, what I would call, reaction or a negative outcome to, um, to a, a vaccine being administered, and if those parents are, if their lives are torn asunder, and if that young person is mm. adversely affected, well, we can't ignore that. Has Early that happened? Things? Oh, absolutely, and one hundred percent. And are you? And and, in, and was that? Con- was, was the- you, I'll tell you what I'll do now, Michael. Mm. I'll stay quiet now for a while because I can't make a point because you keep interrupting. So you just talk away now. Okay. Well, I was just going to ask you about what you were telling us. Was it confirmed to you by a medical practitioner? If I answer now, will you interrupt me again? <laughs> okay. It's, up, it's entirely up to yourself. I'll just listen away to yourself, make all the points you like, because every time I say something, you keep interrupting me. Okay, well, you know, uh, go ahead, uh, and uh, I'll try uh, and uh, bear with it. Go ahead. Well, thank you, if I can make the point. You're giving the impression that nothing has ever gone wrong with regard to the administering of vaccines. Yes, it has. I have been invited, I've met with groups, I've been inside in people's homes where there has been negative outcomes. Those people ask me to raise these concerns. They raise them their, themselves with their GPs, with their consultants. They raise them directly with the Department of Health, with the ministers, and they wanted me to do so as well and to lobby and raise the concerns that they had. I have done that. If you think that's irresponsible, well, I'm very sorry for you, Michael. But I am there to represent people, whether they're people who think the vaccines are good, which obviously the vaccines are for the greater good. I have said that. I've said it on your program now. I've said it in the past. We can start to say, oh, yes, there has been bad outcomes. So Mm. we'll we'll stop the vaccine program, all the different vaccines. You couldn't do that because that wouldn't be for the people's better health. Uh, You have to go for the greater good. But having said that, I cannot or you cannot ignore parents who have children whose lives have been told. Okay, ca- ca- can I interrupt you now? Michael Haley, right? Can I, do you mind if I interrupt you now? Why do I show okay. you? Okay, okay. I, 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 and you interrupt me now anytime you like, uh, because... Uh, I'd like to remind you of what the minister said to you in relation to this. He said, uh, and as to whether you accept what the minister said, he said the most frequently reported side effects are local redness and or swelling at the point of injection and fever. These are usually mild and temporary reactions to any kind of vaccination. Fainting has occurred a- after vaccination with Gardasil, especially in adolescents. Mild and temporary reactions to any kind of vaccination are not unusual. He said it's important to re- reiterate that all medicines, including vaccines, are so subject to ongoing review and evaluation of all available data from a range of sources and they're widespread and he went through all of that uh, and I'll just uh, move on uh, to the next part uh, which was that he said that he'd like to reassure anybody who's suffering ill health that they're eligible to seek medical attention but that there is no evidence that vaccines cause long-term illness so you have to assume that that is not the case. Right. And the answer I would make to that, I have seen outcomes that have been really negative where young people, they were affected in their studies. And when I say affected, I don't mean just a physical reaction. I mean, I mean um, reactions psychologically whereby their, their lives were really torn apart. 
and it really had a negative outcome for them. So you reject and, what the minister says uh, and what all of these I, medical expertise say? I, I didn't say I reject anything. You said that as if I said it. I didn't say it, Michael. And if you want to be argumentative about it, you can be as argumentative as you like. Well, the minister is saying that there's in. no evidence. I You're would, saying there is evidence. I, I'm, I, the evidence that I have is that I know real people who have been affected in a very bad and negative way. I cannot ignore that fact. Now, if there is no other medical explanation for what happened to them other than uh, it it went back to the vaccines that they received, and I am not Mm. under any circumstances trying to frighten people or trying to say that vaccines are bad. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it has happened. There has been occurrences, and many of them. Okay. And... uh, and not just, obviously, in County Kerry, but throughout the country, because I have uh, a lot of evidence of that, of people contacting me and other public relatives. OK, and I, I take it you'll continue to raise questions in the doll, despite the Minister asking you not to, uh, and dis- d- d- uh, uh, I, suggesting that they you. were irresponsible I, questions. I'll turn it back to you. Mm. When you're doing your job, if the Minister doesn't like a person doing their job, if he wants to call that irresponsible, I know I could certainly accuse the Minister of, of being irresponsible when there are thousands of people waiting to have hips and knees mm. and cataracts removed from their eyes and when they're going blind in Ireland, I could accuse him of being irresponsible, okay. but I don't do so. I, I just do my job in a factual uh, and work person-like way. I'm over time. You so don't I, like, and if you don't like what not I me. do, well, that's your business. Okay, like. I'm over time. I have to leave there. Thank you very much, as always, for joining us on the programme. Independent TD for Kerry, Michael Healy Ray. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.